Good morning. I'm going to begin a series here in the coming weeks on the basics of the apostles' teaching in the New Testament. I'm going to begin with what did the apostles teach about the gospel, about Christ, what God has done in Christ for us. And the goal of this uh, teaching this morning is to really encourage you to ask yourself, what am I really relying on in the gospel to understand it more fully, to be able to articulate it so that you can share it, and to be able then to weave your own testimony uh, into the story of the gospel. There's really one place in Scripture where we get a good glimpse and window into the clear apostolic preaching of the gospel. There are other places with Paul, but with Peter, if you go with me to Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, you'll see one of the clearest explanations of what the apostles preach about the gospel in these verses. I want to begin really by telling the story of Cornelius. There's two sides of this story. There's God working on both sides of the street. There's Peter as an unwilling messenger at first, but God worked in his heart to change him, to give the message. And then over here, the Gentile Cornelius, who was seeking God, And God sends more light to him. And then his life is changed by the message of the gospel. I'm going to give you the story from Cornelius' perspective. He was as Roman as Roman could be. He had long labored in the Roman army as a non-commissioned officer in Italia, worked up from the start to now a centurion, commanding three to six hundred men of the Italian cohort who were normally stationed in Austria, but were now stationed in Caesarea, what the Romans called their province of Palestine, for the glory of Rome to keep the peace. Pax Romana, Caesar called it, the peace across the Roman Empire and the world through the show of military force and Roman engineering. Rome was how peace was to be brought into the world. He had been influenced to worship the Roman gods, Jupiter, Augustus, Mars, Venus, but found them lacking and empty. It was when he had arrived with his family in this important and strategic seaport station named after Caesar Augustus that Herod the Great had built up to rival Greek cities and lived among the Jews, he had seen a glimpse of the God who claimed he was over all gods, who was one God and whose call to live in his ways under him affected all of the life of the Jew. He was intrigued, and he began to press into learning more about Judaism and the way of the Jews. The more he learned, the more it began to shape him. He became more devout, more God-fearing, and influenced those in his household as well. He gave generously to the poor, and he prayed regularly to God. It was hard, though, learning about this new God in this land. Finding a midwife for his first baby born in this land had proved hard enough as Jewish midwives were forbidden to aid a Gentile woman in childbirth. And synagogue, the most efficient way to learn more about his God from the rabbis, was virtually impossible to get into as a Gentile. There were such a long litany of hoops to jump through to convert to Judaism. He had slowly developed relationships with the local Jews and learned the basics of Torah, the law of Moses, and what the fundamental aspects, Yahweh, the one true God, expected. 
the prayers, the giving to the poor, the requirement of circumcision to enter fully into Judaism. Now, there were some things he was willing to do and learn and grow, and, but others not so much. The Jews had always hated anything to do with Rome, their conquerors. And their city of Caesarea that Herod had designed to be so Roman, to flatter the emperor of Rome, was a hard reminder of that. But this centurion Cornelius was different. Other centurions had come and gone over the decades, and the Jews had become used to their harsh ways. They looked upon the Jewish people of Caesarea as a necessary evil and reminder to why the Roman army had to be there in the first place. But this centurion, Cornelius, seemed to have a genuine interest in them and what they believed about Yahweh. He even became respected in the community as a generous benefactor, giving to those who had need. He was acting on the light that had been made available to him, but he knew something was missing. It was an ordinary day. He was in the house he had bought on the ocean when they had moved there several years ago. The Mediterranean Sea shimmering and glistening out the window. About three o'clock in the afternoon, he began to have a vision. He saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel said to him, your prayers and your gifts to the poor had been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying with another Simon, a tanner, who lives near the seashore. And so as soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants, a devout soldier, uh, one of his own personal attendants, and he told them what had happened. And he sent them off to Joppa, as the angel had told them. They met Peter. After they arrived, and Peter says, we have to go. God had been working in Peter's own heart. You can see this in Acts chapter 10 earlier. And then they arrive in Caesarea. Cornelius is waiting for them. He had called together his relatives and his close friends. And as Peter entered his home, Cornelius falls at his feet and worships him, knowing that he is a messenger sent directly by God through this news from the angel. Cornelius was so hungry to hear good news. He was a good man, a moral man, but he needed to be saved from judgment. But Peter pulled him up and said, stand up, I'm, I'm a human being just like you. So they talked together and they went inside where many others were assembled. Peter bringing his Jewish group in and Cornelius with those he had gathered to listen. And Peter told them, you know, it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God's shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure and unclean. So I came as soon as I was sent for. But tell me, why did you send for me? And so Cornelius rehearses the story, told the story about what had happened four days ago. He said, four days ago, I was, I was praying in my house about the same time, three o'clock in the afternoon. 
All of a sudden, there was a man in bright, shining clothes standing in front of me. And he told me, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your gifts to the poor have been noticed by God. Now send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying in the home of another Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. So I sent for you at once and it was good of you to come. Now we're all here. We want to hear the message. God has given you. So Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. Peter acknowledged that faith in a transformed life, not what you're born into, not your ethnicity or keeping the Old Testament laws. Faith is what authenticates a person as God's own. And he's about to explain how salvation in Jesus makes a transformed life and a child of God possible. And so Peter begins and he says, the word that God sent to the children of Israel This word to the Jews preaching peace through Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. He is Lord of all. You can imagine Cornelius hearing these words and been taught that Caesar was Lord and knowing what the Jews taught about how there is one God and reconciling this now with This other person, Jesus, the Messiah. And Peter went on and said, that word, you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism that John preached. How that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. He put his mark and his power on him with a third person of the Trinity. And he went about, Jesus did, with this filling of the Holy Spirit, doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil because God was with him because God had sent him. And we're witnesses of all of these things that he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, who they killed like a curse, like a cursed man by hanging on a tree. Him, God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. But not to everybody, but to particular witnesses chosen before by God. Even us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to proclaim to the people. And to bear witness, to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To this Messiah, all the prophets witness and testify that through his name, the only way that whoever believes in him of all nations will receive the wiping away, the remission, the forgiveness 
of sins. He's the one. All the prophets testified about saying that everyone who believes him will have their sins forgiven through his name. And it was while Peter was saying these words, even before he had finished his message, that Luke tells us the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening. And the Jewish believers who were with Peter and had come to into this house were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on non-Jews as well, Gentiles, because they heard the sign of the Holy Spirit, them speaking in tongues. Now, this is the third time that Peter had shared this good news in the book of Acts that Luke records. Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 before the Jewish religious leaders in Acts chapter 3, and now here for the first time with non-Jewish people, Gentiles. But what were the elements here of this life-saving message that we call the good news, the gospel? Well, here in these verses in Acts 10, and you can see in verse 34 through 43, you have the message. You see that there's a short introduction to connect to Cornelius as a Gentile, keenly interested in Israel. You have the life of Jesus of Nazareth portrayed as the promised one, the Messiah. And then his death as an innocent man. His resurrection as the Son of God. His return as the judge that we must all face, both the living and the dead. And then, of course, his offer of salvation to all Jew and Gentile, all peoples who will completely trust this message of this person. Well, in the next chapter, chapter 11, um, Peter goes back and he rehashes with his Jewish uh, believing uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. It says the apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God in chapter 11, verse 1. And they began to get a little antsy and said, you were eating and drinking and went to a Gentile's house. And Peter rehashes the story and verse 4, and he says basically this. I was in Joppa, and God's Spirit told me to go with them. Without a doubt. Without second guessing. And these six brothers, they went with me, and we entered this man's house, and he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's going to tell you these words by which you and all your household will be saved, rescued, saved from their sins, saved from God's judgment upon their sin. And Peter says in in chapter 11, verse 5, uh, he says, And I began to speak, and the Holy Spirit fell on them as it did with us right at the beginning in Acts 2 at Pentecost. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John truly indeed of truth baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And if God gave the same gift that he gave us to them when we believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Messiah, he says this in verse 17. For as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did to us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God. I want you to think about that. 
What was I that I could withstand God? This universal offer of the gospel. Whoever will believe. And look at their response in verse 18. When they heard these things, they became silent. They held their peace. Shut them up. And all they could do was this. They glorified God saying, Then has God also to the Gentiles granted repentance to life. Dead to life. He makes the dead to come alive. Some reflections on this story here. Here's what learns. Here's what we can learn. Here's what it teaches us. Here's how it builds us up. And our understanding of the gospel and then our ability to share and articulate the gospel to others, this life-giving message, repentance to life, drills deep on our hearts, gives us a firm foundation, weaves our own story in, and then enables us to see that multiply. First thing I want you to see, just as some an obvious um, truth from these verses, is that doing righteous was not the simple matter that some people make it. A lot of people think that being a good person is going to earn them a relationship with God. But friends, let's look at this guy, Cornelius. Was there a better guy than him? If his honest pagan convictions as a Roman had had been sufficient, then why did he then go and feel drawn to the synagogue and the Jewish teachings? If the synagogue had been enough, why would God have sent a messenger to go get Peter? Why was Peter there? And it wasn't just enough that Peter was there. He had to believe the life-saving message of the gospel that Peter delivered. You know, some moral rules of life apart from Jesus as the Redeemer brings tragedy. And so if you have not called upon the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, to save you from your sins. You are under God's judgment. And God invites you through the gospel to come to him. But I want to talk to believers here. First of all, believers, you we have professed with our mouths. We have, um, uh, I trust that you've been baptized as your public profession that you are relying totally upon the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection for your fellowship with God, your life with God, eternal life. And if that is true, then we love our king. And some things I see from these verses are are these um, four points here. If we love the king, we must reflect The king's heart. The king's heart for all peoples, all image bearers. If we love the king, we must reflect the king's heart. Do you? Do you? Are there people that you do not want God's grace extended toward? There can be no bias in our hearts to humans made in the image of God. He loved us when we were unworthy. Peter had to understand that. Who are the people that 
your heart may not want God to extend his grace toward. <clears throat> you know, the example is given to us in the story of Jonah. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew what God's grace would do to the Ninevites. He knew that God would transform the Ninevites. It wasn't that <clears throat> Jonah was scared to go into Nineveh because of the things the Assyrians did. It was at the end of the book, if you read what he says, it's, I knew your heart, God. I knew what you would do. I knew that if they repented, you would extend grace to them. And friends, are there people that you just don't want God to love because you don't love them? If we love the king, we must reflect the king's heart. All through these verses in chapter 10, this message is, is clearly shown to be universal, given to the whole earth, to every created human being. All nations, all peoples. Secondly, if we love the king, we ourselves, of course, must have experienced the king's message. Have you? I trust that you have, that you're relying and leaning upon this message of the risen king. But I want to assure you, believer, that what they had is what you have. It's no different. This story, 2,000 years or so ago, this message is still the life-changing message. If we love the king, we must have experienced the king's message by us relying on what he has said. And by him changing us, what they had is what you have. The same Holy Spirit who came upon them when they believed is who you have. What they had is what you have. Thirdly, if we love the king, then we must know the king's message. Now, what Peter recounts in this message to the Gentiles are historical facts, but they are more than that. These historical facts are the truths of the reality in the universe of what God has done. Yes, this happened in Roman history and Jew the, the, uh, the Jewish people in Jerusalem in that day with the Romans nailed him to the cross. That happened in history. But God was doing something with this. Do you know the message? Scholars tell us that this passage in Acts chapter 10 is one of the clearest examples of the apostolic kerygma, the proclaiming of what God has done to reconcile sinners to himself and our response. In fact, that outline that Peter gives there is taken by his protege later on, Mark, John Mark. And John Mark outlines his gospel in this very way. This is the good news. Now think about how Cornelius had heard this. Cornelius, who had been trained to understand that peace would come through Rome, Pax Romana to the world, through Roman military power and engineering. And Peter says this in Acts chapter 10. That peace must come through Jesus Christ. He says in verse 36, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He, not Caesar, is Lord of all. Well, friends, in a world that's looking for peace, you and I as believers are to be little beacons of peace. 
We are to be the display, the message of how true peace comes because of the message from the king that has made us at peace with God. So do you clearly understand the message? Do you understand the parts of the message? Because if we love the king, then fourthly, we must speak the king's message. Can you speak the king's message? See, the, the, when, you, when you look at the preaching of the apostles, of Messiah, there's a, there's a consistent pattern, a drumbeat, over and over and over again, of these general things. That the prophet's words in the Old Testament of the Messiah coming are fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. He was born as a descendant of King David. He died, according to the scriptures, to deliver us from the present evil age. He was buried. He rose again bodily on the third day, according to the scriptures. In other words, this was God's plan all along. This wasn't on a whim. This wasn't something that just happened. And he is exalted at the right hand of God as the son of God and the judge of the living and the dead. He is a Lord and Savior and he will come again as judge of all the earth. And then their challenge, their response is turn to him alone. Trust his words alone for the forgiveness of sins to be rescued. And he will change your whole life by his spirit who he will put upon you. And so if we love the king, we must be able to speak that message. Has it been drilled into your head? Can you articulate the message? And then in this story and all along, all through this, you see God working. If we love the king, we have to trust the king's power. It isn't in my persuasiveness, though God can use that. But that's not ultimately where the power resides. The power is in the message, and the power is in the message as the Holy Spirit has been working. So if you love the king, you have to trust the king's power in this. Do you trust him? Because the Holy Spirit is the unseen agent, invisible, but very visible as he is working on both sides of the street, so to speak. If you had a chance to read Acts 10 through 11, verse 18, you see what the Holy Spirit was doing in Peter the messenger, and what the Holy Spirit was doing in Cornelius and those who had received the gospel. He was preparing the ground. He was changing the messenger and he's changing the receiver. Listen, if we understand the power of this message, we need to understand that we are working with God who is already working. He is already working behind the scenes. And so those ones who you might not want to share the gospel with, the ones who you might be hesitant to share these truths with, the ones who you do not want to see God extend his grace with, God's already working there. And so if we love the king, we have to trust the king's power and then in faith go with it and share the message. But just some practical things um, for, for us to think about here. Um, I, we, we want us to be in awe of the gospel. The message this changes us. We want us to have it drilled into our heads. We want us to be able to articulate it. We want it to control our lives. We also, we need to be able to share it. And so I, so can you articulate the summary of the gospel according to the apostles proclaiming a Messiah? Does it control your life? And can you take your own story of how God worked in you and you believed upon the gospel, your testimony, your story of how this is what you rely on and how it's changed you. Let me encourage you to do it then. 
one of the most helpful things you might do is to take a pen and paper and write it out. Write out your story of what you're relying on and how it's changed you. If you need some prompts, jot these down. Get a pencil, get a pen out, and, and jot these prompts out about how to share the gospel by weaving it into the story of your new life. Because your, your testimony of how you came to Christ is very powerful. So here's some prompts for you. First of all, fill in the blank. There was a time in my life when, what was it like before Christ? You might say, well, I was a little child when I came to Christ. Do you understand that it is an amazing story that when people come to Christ as young children, God spares them from who knows what down the road? You might say, well, I, I got saved growing up in a believing family. That's a tremendous story because had you continued on that way in unbelief, in, an unbe in a believing family, your heart would just be built up with pride and self-righteousness and assumptions about the gospel. But God broke through. So there was a time in my life when, this is before Christ, and then next the next prop. And then one day, and then one day, what happened? When you came to Christ and you believed in what Jesus had done for you, his life, death, burial, and resurrection in your place, that he died for your sins and that he rose again to bring you new life, then one day, all right? Third prompt. When I understood Jesus died for my sins and rose again to give me new life, I, what? What happened? What happened? What did that do? And then A.D., after Christ, has come. Number four. Since I know Jesus, I, how has he changed your life? How have you grown in him? What were the ups and downs that he showed you he was there all the time and he's going to carry you through? What were the things he had to wean you off of? So for, since I know Jesus, I, and what are you looking forward to? What is your living hope? What is the relationship of God that he's delivered you to? And then five. So five prompts here. If I had never met Jesus, I, fill in the blank. If I had never met Jesus. Did you ever think about that? That's a humbling thing. It really causes you to tremble. And it really causes you to look up with tear-filled eyes at our King. If I had never met you, Jesus, I... And parents... Maybe this would be a good activity to do around the table one of these weeknights. To sit down and help your kids understand what the gospel is. What the points of the gospel are from the apostolic preaching of the gospel. You could go right there into Mark chapter 10 and verse 34 to 43 right there. List the things that Mark talks about. What must be believed and relied upon totally. What we must turn to. And help them understand that. And then, for those that have relied on this, help them to put together their testimony. 
and then practice sharing it with one another. There was a day, and this is where I was before Christ, and then one day, and then when I understood Jesus died for my sins and rose again to give me new life, I, and since I know Jesus, I, and if I had never met Jesus, I, you see, God's grace puts us on a whole new trajectory. And one of the ways he puts this us and others on a whole new trajectory is families. God changes families' trajectory from where they would have been apart from Christ to now where he's sending them. To where God will send uh, the people you speak to about the gospel, your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends, your, your other outside family members. If you don't tell them, their story may not be if I had never met Jesus. It may just stay that way. And so adapt this, use this to put together a coherent, short, articulate explanation of what the gospel is and how Jesus has changed your life. It's the most amazing truth in the world. God bless you guys. And we'll work next time on what happens at the end of Acts chapter 10. After they believed, the Holy Spirit came upon them. Peter said, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay or to tarry certain days. The next step after believing is baptism. What does that mean? Is that just a ritual you go through? Is it just uh, something to check off the box? We're going to look at the depth and meaning of what baptism is that marks us out, that is our outward profession that Jesus has died and we have died with him. Our sins have been nailed to the cross with Christ. And Jesus has arose and we have risen with him to new life. And so we'll look at that next fundamental aspect here of the apostles' teaching as they strengthen the churches from making disciples to baptizing disciples and then teaching them to obey everything that Jesus Christ had commanded. God be with you this week.